0: Last week, we began a series in the Proverbs, which is all about wisdom, and the reason we did so, I think, is obvious. You and I swim in a sea of knowledge, but that knowledge is of no use to us unless we know how to apply it, both at the right time, in the right way, for the right purpose, and that's the definition of wisdom, how to take truth and how to live it out clearly, carefully, cogently, and all those things. This morning we are going to step into a large theme that the Proverbs holds near and dear to itself, and that is wisdom when it comes to caring for the poor. It's no coincidence. We're obviously talking about this today, given what is out in the gallery and what our attention is fixed upon. But as Gandhi once said a long time ago, a nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members. And I would dare say the same principle is applicable to the church. But the measure of any church community is the kind of concern it gives both to the weakest among itself and to the weakest within its, reach, within its reach. And so we want to consider what that concern is. And I'm glad that we are today. I'm glad that we're sort of launching forward out into this theme because I know my instinct is when you tell me that we're going to learn about wisdom, what you're really trying to tell me is how do I improve myself? That's not what the Proverbs are for. It's primarily how we might look beyond ourselves. And it surely has something to do with how we care for the poor. Now, all those organizations out there have ministries to situations that are not just economically destitute situations. So when we speak of the poor today, I think it's applicable to their, where is the need and where can we be of assistance? That's our focus. That's the focus of our concern. And we want to look at that concern in three ways. The shape of it the ground of it, and the strength for it. The shape of this concern, the ground for this concern, and the strength for this concern. And we're going to let Marty and Wafa come up and read to us several Proverbs that speak to that question. So if you're able, would you stand to hear?
1: Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor.
2: Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished.
1: Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed.
2: Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered.
1: The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is maker of them all.
2: Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor.
1: Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty.
2: Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them.
1: A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge.
2: The poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever.
1: This is the word of the Lord.
2: Thanks Thanks be to God.
0: God. When you're talking about the shape of the concern for the poor, as the, what, as the Proverbs teach us, you're really asking three questions. Who are the poor? In what mode do we help them? And what's the goal of it? When it comes to who, there are two words that you find in the Proverbs that refer to the poor. One is rosh, one is dal. They essentially mean those who find themselves in a difficult situation, in a tight spot, due to consequences beyond their control. If you want to find a, a biblical illustration of that experience, all you got to do is go to the very short book of Ruth. Naomi's family is uh, in the midst of a famine, and they have to leave Bethlehem, which is the great irony of the story. Bethlehem means city of bread. What's the problem? There's no bread. we got to leave. they got to Moab. It's out of their control. They had no control over the uh, barometric pressure at that time in Israel's history. And the reason that the Proverbs make that distinction is because it's an important one. Those who find themselves in the jaws of a situation that they couldn't control versus those who have made repeated foolish choices and now they are suffering the consequences of those decisions. The Proverbs makes that distinction. And while that distinction holds, the Proverbs is also going to help us reckon with the fact that there are always extenuating circumstances in anybody's situation. The cause for their uh, malady versus the perceived cause of their malady may be worlds apart. And for us who see them, it requires that we don't make this hasty generalization, this hasty conclusion about what's led to their condition. We have to be present. We have to get underneath the surface. We have to understand what are the underlying causes. The Proverbs points to that. It also reckons with the fact that there are some times where it's because of our choices And also because of things that are beyond our choices that lead to our calamity. And a lot of the times, when something happens that was beyond our control, we make the kinds of desperate choices that would just be foolish. And it compounds the problem. Once again, the Proverbs is asking us to make a distinction between both unpredictable, unsolicited, and unwise consequences but it's also asking us not to make those hasty deductions too quickly. We have to discern the situation. That's the who of it. What is the means by which we show this concern? Um, and this will not be rocket science for you. It boils down to two things. Do no harm and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That may sound familiar. When it comes to saying we're not going to do any harm to the poor, those those ideas live on a spectrum. Um, What it says there in 22.16, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. You disenfranchise, you defraud, you're doing harm. It's against the spirit of what the Proverbs is saying. There in 17.5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Fine, you're not oppressing or robbing. If you're deriding the poor simply because they are without, you're doing harm. And all of us in this room would probably hear that and go, Yeah, y- yes, absolutely. I don't, I don't oppress so far as I know. I'm certainly going to deride somebody that's in a difficult, tight spot. But what it says in 2113 changes the game a little bit. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. All you have to do is ignore the poor and think it's somebody else's problem or conclude too hastily that they put themselves in this bed and now they made their bed and now they're going to sleep in it. That, in this spectrum of ways in which you might do harm, is just as reprehensible as those who are oppressing and robbing the poor. Do no harm. What does it mean then to do unto others as you would have them do unto you? That that could boil, be boiled down to this idea of just being generous. There in 1917, which is a, a passage you'll hear probably three times in this sermon. It's radioactively good. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. It's this, it's this dispositional favor and kindness and care and concern for them, which is amplified by what you hear in chapter 22, 9. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. It's a good eye. It's seeing them as they are. That's a bountiful eye. That's a generous eye. And again, if you're looking for a a wonderful illustration of that generosity at work, you only have to go as far as that four-chapter work of Book of Ruth. Ruth is at first generous unto Naomi by saying, I will be with you till I die. Your people will become my people. Your God will be my God. And then if they're still looking for bread, they run into this guy named Boaz. And Boaz is generous unto Ruth and Naomi by giving them more grain than they could possibly need. And then towards the end of that story, it's Naomi who is good unto Ruth to help her find a husband that she might live long in the days of Israel. Generosity pervades that story. Because that's the posture a favor, and doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Near to our day, let me tell you about a, a woman you may have heard of. Her name is uh, Michelle Nash. She works for the Cuyahoga, Cuyahoga County Correctional Facility just out of Cleveland. She works with all the at-risk youth. And a few years ago, or after several years ago, she was, she was paired up with a, a then 15-year-old kid who had bounced its way, bounced his way out of high school by being disrespectful to everybody on the list. She gets him, she becomes a mentor to him. First time she meets him, she notices that his shoes are too small for his feet. His his toes are are curling over the side of the shoe. So, she kind of maybe with better judgment takes him to a Foot Locker, uh buys him the cheapest pair of Nike's that she can find him, but before they do, the guy asks the kid, "Um, how big are your feet?" and he says, "Size 10." And then they measure his foot. Is a size 12 because he hadn't had shoes in three years. And right then, Michelle Nash gets up out of the room and walks to the other side because she's crying because she's so broken by him. She continues to care for him, continues to check in on him, and then one night at 2 o'clock in the morning, she gets a call from him saying, wherever I am, i got to get out of here. She she brings him to their house where her husband and she live. She was unable to have children. She She pulls a mattress down from the attic, puts it in the guest room, and says, you can sleep here tonight. And he just sort of stares at the mattress. And says to her, I never had my own bedroom. She gets up, leaves the room, and goes to cry because she's just sort of, just beset by what his experience has been. And as she continues to care for him over time, he, upon reflection, Lana looks back and says, why she was so helpful to him is because she would put structure in place for him. She would help him to be accountable to certain situations. That's Michelle Nash's story. And the person that she cared for was this guy named Cardale Jones who a few years ago, in playing for Ohio State, third-string quarterback, leads them to the national championship, and now he's a quarterback for the Los Angeles Chargers. Kid needed shoes. Kid needed bed. Kid needed a chance. And she manifested generosity there in spades and with tears in her eyes all the time. That's the manner of the shape of this concern. Generosity is not the goal. We don't sort of pat ourselves in the back and say, oh, look, I'm being generous. Like, that's the point. No, the, the goal of this concern is that you and I would see to their flourishing in the Lord. Flourishing. There's a, a word you know from the Old Testament. It's the word shalom. No, it doesn't just mean hello or peace. It means wholeness. It means fullness. It means allowing them to grow into their greatness as they can. That's what it means to be flourishing. And the problem with so much generosity these days is that it is ordered more towards proving to ourselves that we can be generous, and less so into making sure that it's really helping them to flourish. There's a book that I think many in our diaconate have read or have studied that you may be familiar with. A guy named Brian Fickert and Steve Corbett wrote a book called When Helping Hurts. And uh, they make the argument that there is, there is so much help that comes to the way of those who find themselves in a destitute situation that actually does more harm than good. That there's a a form of generosity that rather than alleviate, actually alienates the people that they're trying to help. Such that in that book, the argument that they make is more than ensuring that people have enough material things, care for the poor includes the harder task of empowering people to earn what they need through their own labor. But it's not simply meeting a need. It is actually meeting a greater need to help them create a level of stability in their lives such that they're then able to pay it forward. That they're able to do what we are doing unto those whom we're offering help unto. That's the nature of it. The goal is not simply to be generous for generosity's sake, but to alleviate in such a way that allows them, perhaps, to be of help to others in time. That's... The goal. That's the shape of their concern. It's not simply optimizing their situation. It's not simply helping them to become the best that they can be. That's, that's actually half the battle because, as we said last week, you can be everything you wanted to be and still be a fool. In fact, you can get everything that you still wanted to get and still be empty. Flourishing in the Lord is the goal. And that's the shape of our concern. I think it's clear that there's a basis for this, that God clearly has an interest in our being about care for the poor. But the Proverbs that we read had plenty to say, if you weren't sure, about the true essence of why we should be concerned for the poor. And the first of those reasons is that God is on the side of the poor. He has an interest in them. In 22.22, you heard him say, do not rob the poor because he's poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their cause. He's an advocate. And here we have to do a little sidebar. Because if we're going to say out loud with full throat, God is on the side of the poor, then some people might say, if he's on the side of the poor, why are they poor? If he's so much an advocate, why are they in this desperate strait? And that is part of a piece of a larger question about if God is so powerful and strong and benevolent, why is there so much evil and why is there so much poverty? It's a totally legit question. To which I'll give you only the, the bare bone responses because that's that deep waters, okay? And, and, and that's beyond the scope of what this, this sermon can answer or even what the Proverbs are out to tell us. That's for another sermon. But I will say two things. One is this. Why, why is there so much poverty in this world or so much disadvantage, one of the reasons is because of sin. Whether it be personal sin, whether it be structural sin, whether it be institutional sin, whether it be cultural sin, that conspires to keep people in different situations that allow them to be disadvantaged. Some of you may have read the article in the New York Times last week about longitudinal studies based on credible data that would, uh, that would argue that if you're a black woman in this world, that the mortality rate for you and your child is almost twice that of those of other ethnicities. And they pressed into that data and tried to figure out why is that? Is it, is it a matter of, of socioeconomic reality? It's not, because they even talked with people who had um, PhDs, that the, that the experience is appreciably different. Because there are things that are operating beneath the surface, forms of discrimination that we're barely sensible to, that conspire, whether consciously or not, to create different outcomes for different individuals. That's one reason poverty continues to be a persistence, why it continues to be a struggle in a variety of different venues. But at the same time I'm saying that, I will, I have to say this too, because I think you believe it. One's, one's material poverty does not always correlate with one's spiritual poverty. In the same way that one's material wealth doesn't always correlate to one's spiritual wealth. You can't have everything you need and still be absolutely desperate and despairing inside. And you know plenty of people in your life who have absolutely maybe nothing, but who demonstrate a poise and a peace and a capacity to love like you don't have and which you wish, you envy. Wathan and Marty sent me a message from a pastor in Uganda today who said, it's, we're up early, we're out worshiping, but we're praying for you. And this church has barely, we would say, from our perspective, practically nothing, but is able to look beyond themselves and to look with love and hope and help beyond themselves. God is on the side of the poor. And he even meets the poor in their destitution and even allows them to speak with great care and candor and love in the midst of their condition. He is for the poor, he's an advocate for the poor, but he also identifies with the poor. Again in 17.5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. And in 1917, again, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. He identifies with the poor so much that if you are mocking, if you are deriding the poor, you're actually deriding the Lord. And if you're generous to the poor, you're actually being generous uh, being generous to the poor, you're being generous to the Lord. Which maybe should sound familiar if you've ever read the gospel according to Matthew. Because Jesus in chapter 25 says it pretty clearly. If you care for those who are naked, for those who are hungry, for those who are in prison... You do it unto them, you do it unto me. He is on the side of the poor because he identifies with the poor. You know why else this care is in play? Not only because God is on the side of the poor, but because you're on the side of the poor. And by that I mean what we heard in 22.2. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. And what you also heard in uh, 29.13, the poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. In just those two texts, there's this inseparable, indissoluble reality that you and I, regardless of where we are in some sort of socioeconomic spectrum, we share a common identity, we share a common origin. That our destiny is bound up with the plight of the poor because we share in the same desire as they do to flourish in the Lord. And therefore, Tim Keller says, rather succinctly and pointedly, as he is wont to do, if you look down at the poor or stay aloof from their suffering, you've not really understood or experienced God's grace. If the church does not identify with the marginalized, it will itself be marginalized. That is God's poetic justice. we're on the side of the poor because there but for the grace of God go we. And we share that common interest. And by this point, some of you are saying, I know all that. I've heard all that. I believe all that. Now what? Relax. We'll get there. Others of you are saying, I know all that. I've heard all that. Hush. Enough with the guilt. Stop pushing me with guilt. To which I would say, I'm not pushing you with guilt. Because guilt, as strong as a motivator as it can be, and we've all been motivated by it from time to time, if not in this very hour, is not a sustainable motive. And God is not really interested in motivating us in an unsustainable way. So when it comes to the strength of this concern, which is the last thing we need to consider, it's not primarily about guilt. And it's also not this magical force. It has everything to do with your hesitancies in caring for the poor. What do I mean by that? A long time ago, a pastor named Jonathan Edwards, you may have heard of him, 18th century pastor, uh, gave a sermon on Deuteronomy 17, in which he enumerated 11 objections to acting charitably towards the poor. Relax, I will not now enumerate 11. But I will share two that I think have particular resonance to you and me. Two objections to our care for the poor that kind of stick the first is this, I tried to help, it didn't help, so why should I contribute to try? That's one. It didn't work, why bother? The other one is this, if I rescue them from their plight, am I not doing them more harm than good by perpetuating a problem? Those are two reasons a lot of people like to throw out. And they're legit, because in some ways they have a kernel of truth to that. How do we respond to that? How does, where do we find the strength for this concern with those objections that seem real. I'm taking you back one last time to that one passage in Proverbs 19.17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. You've heard it three times. The principle, I think, is clear. But the principle that that proverb is outlining actually played out in practice in a way that the person who penned it had no idea because there was one who came with grace and riches for the sake of those who were in a place of destitution and God rewarded him for it. Jesus Christ comes to this earth, denies and divests himself of everything that he has and everything that he knows that he might come and act richly toward us that we might believe and be reconciled unto him. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be hoarded, a thing that you just keep to yourself, but instead it says he emptied himself. Emptied himself that we might become rich unto God. Jesus Christ came into our weakness and limitation that we might become whole again. He experienced hunger and homelessness and harassment and being harangued that we might walk in fullness of life. He entered into our material poverty, he he entered into material poverty, that he might bring us spiritual riches. But his concern was not on our spiritual wealth alone. The very first sermon he gives, in Luke chapter 4, in which he quotes Isaiah, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, that I might proclaim good news to the poor. Poor. It's where his concern is. Jesus didn't come to this earth as this disembodied entity. He came as a child in squalor, in the flesh. And when he was resurrected, he was not resurrected as this disembodied spirit, but as a human who ate, who drank, whose side you could touch. And all of that has vast implications for a way God has concern not just for our souls, but for our bodies. And from that basis, he compels us to be considered in that way. In that way, Jesus is our example. An example of concern. And by that example, he is a motivation for that concern. And that concern has been manifested innumerable times for as long as there's been a church. Such that C.S. Lewis famously wrote a very long time ago in Mere Christianity. If you read history... You'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. I know Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses, but that would be because that would be a distorted view of religion. Lewis responds with saying, actually, you know, if your concern is on the way in which God loved us that we might be part of him forever, then that really may translate in how we operate with love in this present moment. He is our example. But he's got to be more than our example, folks. Because if we just need an example, the cross was pretty much over the top. Paul, says to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 8, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ you know, that that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. He doesn't come and simply exhort us to being caring for the poor. He came to redeem us from all of the reasons that keep us from wanting to be helpful to the poor. By setting before us a picture of beauty, that compels us to love, and that helps us to see that even if we fail at this work, his love does not fail. And because we know that his love does not fail, that might simply rouse us again and again unto this work, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't bear any fruit. We need him more than an example. We need him as a savior and a redeemer precisely because of those objections that we primarily stick get stuck on. We helped. It didn't help. Why bother helping? To which Jesus says, I did a lot of things that bore no fruit, and yet I did not give up. Have you and I a greater reason to be frugal than he? No. And that's why Edwards also said, it's better to give to several that are not objects of charity than to send away empty one that is. What about helping someone and potentially making the situation worse if I do? There is wisdom in understanding their condition. There is strategy that we have to employ in order not to perpetuate a problem. But if you and I run too quickly to this idea that they're not deserving of the generosity, you have to ask yourself and stop, was I deserving of the grace that came to me in Jesus? It's a contradiction in terms. There's no such thing as being deserving of grace. And yet it came, and not because I deserved it. Edwards had a category for people being at fault. He also had a category for people being caught in the jaws of things outside their control. And what he's arguing is this. It is only after you have shown mercy to someone, and they are refusing to make better choices over and over again that will help them get into a place of stability, only then is it a mercy to withhold mercy. That's the wisdom that it offers. And that's the motivation for our care. Where do we start? Because I'm overwhelmed and I'm the one talking about it. Where do we go from here? The temptation would be to just to say, all right, um, go help the poor. Ready? Break. Um, You can. And and there are people um, who have... um, particular aptitudes and and, and, and kinds of uh, uh, capacities to serve. And, and, and that's why we, we call them to become uh, deacons and deaconesses in this church, because they manifest that quality that helps, we hope, will be multiplied among us. But a lot of the times, our ability to be of real help under the care and concern for the poor, it's going to be a community effort. And so I might suggest unto you just a few ways in which we move the ball a little bit forward. The first one is as obvious as the nose on my face. And that is, go wander about the gallery after worship and listen to those organizations. Join us on the 5th to go serve Asheville. Uh, My family printed out the various options you can sign up for that we might discuss it as a family and choose one that we might go as a family and serve. Do that with your family. Do that with your friends. Do that with your group. Some way to advance the ball forward. I know there are many in this world and in this church and in the church at large who long for community. What if you sought to find your community in common service with one another? That's the low-hanging fruit around here, as is leaning into the diaconate and the local outreach team, who are tasked not only with helping to coordinate help, but to instill it in every one of us that we might act with wisdom when it comes to having an opportunity to show mercy. Lean into them. Ask them those questions. Seek their own guidance. And when they call upon us to serve, follow their lead. But the last thing I might say is what really has to shape and inform it all. And to that, I might direct you to an article I read in CNN this week that I think captures it all. Um, This woman writes very candidly about just watching images of uh, Pope Francis caring for elderly and destitute in his midst, just showering them with kindness and mercy and compassion. And this woman who watches the videotape just finds herself weeping and and not really knowing why. Uh, Social psychologists say that there's this thing, In us called elevation, that sometimes when we are gripped by a demonstration of compassion, we are, we are inwardly compelled in, in ways we can't quite explain and, and we don't just appreciate what we see, but the very beauty, the very moral beauty we're witnessing causes us to want to do the same. I have a research project for you. As you study the scriptures and in particular the life of Jesus, my suggestion to you is that you and I study his compassion study the way in which he demonstrated the kind of moral beauty of care for those who had great need. And imagine that moment. Imagine that heart. Because if that article is true, if the psychologists are right, that we have to see moral beauty in, able, in, in order to be able to aspire to that same moral beauty in ourselves, then what better place to look than in the one who manifested that care like no one ever has. He's our hope. He's our example. He's our Savior. And He's the one who will lead us under that care. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.